Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you today uh, in this very strange world that we're living in right now. I have to admit, uh, I'm not fully used to it myself. Uh, this is the first time I've ever uh, participated as a speaker in a conference where uh, the conference was essentially in my own office and I'm sitting here uh, talking to what feels like my computer as opposed to an, an audience where there's obviously a lot more uh, interaction. In any case, that's the way the world is right now, isn't it? And so we'll just adapt and, and move on. And uh, with that, it's a, it's a real pleasure to be part of this, uh, this meeting that you have this weekend. My name is Greg Klein. Uh, I'm an endocrinologist. I work at the uh, University of Calgary, and I've had the distinct pleasure of uh, also gathering some international experience, working as a uh, consulting uh, visiting professor at uh, different hospitals and different locations uh, in Africa um, over uh, the past 10 years. So uh, it's, a, it's, it's really an honor to be invited to be part of a group like this. Today I've been given the topic of uh, presenting on transgender endocrinology as a new area in medicine. And uh, I'll start by saying that uh, this is not the first time that I have given this presentation. Uh, I actually developed this presentation about two years ago for a global missions conference that I was asked to participate in. And it's, it's interesting, uh, I was uh, approached by one of the organizers uh, of the meeting and they said, you know, Greg, would you be willing to uh, speak on some endocrinology topics for our, our, our missions conference? And I said, sure, I'd, you know, I'd love that. And they said, okay, great. We want you to talk about transgender medicine. And I said, no, oh no, I don't think you want me to talk about that. Let's talk about thyroid or, you know, something adrenal. And uh, the organizer said, no, we, we want to talk on transgender endocrinology. And uh, in the end, I actually think there was a lot of wisdom in uh, that person's uh, idea because I think there can be a lot of a lot of value that can come out of a session like this. Uh, I should say at the outset that I actually don't consider myself to be a quote-unquote expert in transgender medicine. Uh, it's It falls within my specialty as an endocrinologist and so I follow the literature of course uh, as, as I would need to to be a specialist in this area. Uh, even though it's not uh, really my uh, particular area of, uh, of specialty interest or practice. So we'll just keep that in mind as we proceed here. So you can't live in our world, in our culture, without being aware of the issue of transgender. Um, on this slide, I've collected a bunch of headlines uh, from the BBC News app, which is my my personal preferred uh, news source. And I've just collected these over the past couple of years, and I'm sure you've seen uh, the same things, or at least ones very similar, uh, such as you know the story around a, a fantastic woman who was once a man, or uh, gender reassignment improved my quality of life transgender woman breastfeeds baby. That certainly got my attention. Or the trans teen who helped to change Australia. Or one that really I felt very uncomfortable seeing. Transgender woman not welcome at church. Well, without question, there has been an absolute explosion in trans medicine over the past 30 years. A study looking at a survey of 132 American and Canadian medical school deans in 2010 reported that they contained a mean of seven hours of instruction specifically dedicated to LGBTQ content. Interestingly, a similar study conducted back in 1992 
showed a mean of three hours dedicated instruction, although really uh, it was focused on issues around homosexuality as opposed to the LGBTQ spectrum that we might identify today. The authors of this study identified 16 subtopics which they felt were important to an understanding of LGBTQ health and noted that most medical schools do not have specific teaching on all 16 topics. Looking um, at endocrinology specialty training programs, so a little closer to home for me, a very recent uh, program survey showed that 72% now provide specific teaching on transgender medicine. I can tell you as someone who finished their endocrine training uh, over 20 years ago, I had zero training in transgender medicine. In fact, it was something that we didn't really talk about. When I was a trainee, uh, we knew of one person in our department, endocrinologist, who saw transgender patients almost as a sort of a secret side business. We didn't talk about it. And uh, everyone knew that if this question came up, you just uh, send it to this person down the hall. And as a trainee in their clinic, if a person with a transgender question came in, I wasn't involved in seeing the patient. Uh, this person would simply see the patient privately and I would wait until the thyroid nodule patient came in or whatever else was next. And so there's been a real change in attitude towards specific teaching in this issue. If you do a Google Scholar search using the terms transgender and medicine, looking at the time frame January 2017 to January 2018, you'll get 6,550 hits. And again, this is a Google Scholar search, not, not a Google search. Interestingly, if you do the exact same search but limit the time frame to 1990 through 1991, you get 49 hits. And in fact, when you look at them in detail, nine of the top 10 hits would not really be identifiable as being related to transgender people. They're probably miscategorized or uh, obliquely categorized uh, hits. So an enormous, enormous explosion in uh, the publications in the, in the trans medicine field over the past 30 years. And of course, as of 1998, there's now the peer-reviewed journal, the International Journal of Transgenderism. And so uh, this is clearly uh, a new and rapidly growing area of uh, medicine and medical research. So what are we gonna do in the next 45 minutes that we have here together? I'd like to give you some objectives and what I'm gonna call some non-objectives. I'm going to look to cover factual aspects. We'll look at terminology in this field. We'll briefly review some of the diagnostic criteria. We'll review some of the recommended processes and guidelines defining gender-affirming medical practices. We'll spend some time thinking about potential medical harms, and I'll highlight some issues that are awaiting further data. I admit that this is going to be very limited in terms of its discussion of the theoretical aspects. For example, political, sociocultural, moral, or theological aspects of this uh, are not going to form a major part of today's presentation. As I alluded to at the beginning, I just want to disclose that uh, I am not currently practicing in the field of transgender endocrinology, uh, but I certainly see uh, patients uh, who are transgendered for other endocrine reasons, and I'm sure the same is true for you. I also want to be clear that my description of the current guidelines and processes in this field should not be interpreted as either necessarily supportive or necessarily critical. As I was working on putting this together, I asked myself, how will I know if I've done this well? What am I aiming to do here? And a few thoughts along those lines. It struck me that far too often in our culture, whether Christian or not, when it comes to discussions that touch on moral 
or sexual issues, it seems to me that we often want to hear the bottom line up front before we engage in the meat of the discussion. For example, if someone said, I'm going to talk about uh, this issue of, uh, of sexuality or, or morality, and I'm going to present uh, sort of a dispassionate uh, view, but just so you know, here's what I think. We like to hear that up front, don't we? Uh, because we want to know if we're talking to a person with quote-unquote safe views, in which case safe probably means somebody who agrees with our own views. But I'd like to argue that it's not really a fair-minded scientific approach to present conclusions before presenting data. And I'm afraid that to do so would color the discussion in such a way that it may actually suppress critical thinking. Therefore, as a science-minded person, one of my goals is that you'll leave this session not knowing where I stand on the political, cultural, moral, or theological aspects of quote-unquote being someone who identifies within the LGBTQ community. This doesn't mean that I don't have thoughts or a stand, but it is not the goal of this presentation to present my feelings about things. Rather, my teaching goal is to initiate and encourage broad critical thinking among all of us in order to inform our actions and to avoid being caught off guard in discussions. We need to have thought and considered uh, our way through this material if we are to uh, talk intelligently and graciously to people in conversations in the future. So when it comes to transgender medicine, people might ask, is this a change in behavior or a change in society? Well, there's plenty of historical evidence that some humans have not always conformed to cultural norms surrounding what might be considered acceptable behaviors of dichotomous genders. And this really is not a controversial statement. However, it's the 20th century Western culture where we begin to see the emergence of the idea that non-gender conforming individuals experience anxiety about their non-traditional gender-related behavioral desires. And so this, uh, this sense of anxiety uh, is a very new and driving force uh, in this area. And this is related to the much more modern concept that a person can feel as though they are trapped in the wrong kind of body. That's not a sentiment that you'll find in ancient or more historical literature. This is a, a thoroughly uh, modern view. This, of course, has all sorts of interesting philosophical ramifications pertaining to the nature of the soul or the spirit, the locus of the self, uh, the nature of identity, all of which make for fascinating discussion, which will probably have to be deferred to a later time. And so the next question might be, well, is this an issue of continuum? And sure enough, early gender theorists proposed that it was just a continuum with male and female gender at either end. And so any given individual might fall at a different point on that continuum. This idea is now largely rejected uh, in the field uh, on account of the fact that there are some individuals who self-describe as being both male and female gendered. There are some who self-describe as alternating in gender over time. There are some who self-describe as being of no gender. And there are them, some who self-describe as having different genders for different parts of the body. And so you can see that this doesn't lend itself to the concept of a single linear continuum. You'll also notice that self-describe is the operative concept. 
nobody can look or examine another person and say, here's where this person falls in the sphere of gender. So what does the literature say about the epidemiology of uh, transgender issues? A survey from 2014 in the United States, encompassing more than 150,000 people, reported approximately 0.5% of individuals who self-identified on the survey as transgender. These individuals were more likely to be non-white, to live in situations of poverty with lower educational attainment. There was, however, no difference in marital status, rural or urban environment, or employed versus unemployed status. If you look at studies that are a little bit older, so prior to 2004, you see some different figures. And I've put notation on the slide to point out that this may relate in part to differing definitions of a transgender quote-unquote case. But you can see from the figures cited that the prevalence is somewhere in the range of 0.005% of individuals. Looking at the Scottish data from this study, you can see there was 0.01% who would have identified with a term gender dysphoria, which we'll talk about, but only a minority of these individuals actually went to the point of taking hormone therapy. The authors of this paper noted that there's been an up to 800% increase in the number of people coming to transgender medicine clinics since the 1970s. And it is unknown whether this is simply because there are more clinics, whether there is more awareness of clinics, whether there is a true increase in the population prevalence of gender dysphoria, or whether it relates to some change in societal definitions or acceptability of transgenderism. Or perhaps it is a combination of several factors. With the marked increase in the visibility uh, and uh, a number of people dealing with this issue, it's easy to see that there's been a strong societal push to encourage self-description to the degree where it is affirmed by both society and other people. If you've paid any attention to the news over the past few years, you will of course recognize plenty of stories of celebrities who get particular attention paid to them on account of their transition. Of course, there are the uh, tragic bathroom wars, which seem to continue regarding who's allowed to use what kind of bathroom. There are lawsuits regarding the inclusion or exclusion of individuals in, say, sporting events or other social activities on account of gender-related issues. We read stories about persons who are refused service because of their belonging to a, a group that we're talking about today. We see plenty of stories that uh, humanize individuals dealing with transgenderism by presenting a day in their shoes or a day in their life. And of course, there is increasing interest and discussion about things like gender-neutral child-rearing. A starting point then, perhaps to become familiar and to begin to address the issue, is to spend some time talking about terminology. This is a really important part of speaking on the topic, whether you're a conference speaker or talking to just others around you. And so we'll go through some of the uh, working uh, definitions. 
It's important that healthcare providers particularly pay attention to this because inaccurate terminology amongst health providers is seen at best as terribly uninformed and therefore potentially out of date. And at worst, inaccurate terminology may make the healthcare provider seem uh, pejorative and potentially a target for complaints. Sex is intended to refer to the traditional dichotomous grouping based on genitalia type or karyotype. Gender, on the other hand, is a role defined by behaviors, attitudes, personality traits, typically as assigned by a given culture or a society, and according to the social role of men or women. The terms biological sex or biological male, biological female are often intended to apply to the physical appearance of genitalia. However, these terms are considered imprecise. There are certainly cases of individuals whose chromosomal makeup does not match their expected genitalia phenotype. And because of the imprecision, these terms are not recommended. Cisgender, reply, or speaks to the opposite of transgender. Gender dysphoria is defined as the unease experienced due to lack of congruence between self-described gender identity and assigned gender. Gender dysphoria as a term should replace the terms transsexualism and gender identity disorder. And a synonym for this would be gender incongruence. Gender identity refers to one's deeply held sense of gender. This is not something that would be visible or discernible to others. Whereas gender expression pertains to the external manifestations of gender, such as names, pronouns, style of clothes, appearance, or body shape. Sexual orientation is intended to describe the nature of physical or emotional attraction to another person. And when we're talking about the transgender field, this is not the same as gender identity. In order to refer to a transgender person attracted to male, we would use the term androphilic, and a transgendered person attracted to female, we would use the term gynophilic. You will also see terms of bisexual, asexual, or queer, which itself can be somewhat difficult to define. The transgender male or trans man refers to the female who has trans, uh, um, transitioned to male, whereas the transgender female, trans woman, would be male to female. Transition refers to the process of aligning physical, social, and legal features to the preferred gender identity. One may next ask, what is the cause of gender dysphoria? And as you can imagine, this is a hotly debated topic. It's very difficult for researchers in the field because speculation and observation has not yet explained the biopsychosocial processes by which a human develops a gender identity in the first place. Some have denied that there's any biological process at all in the development of a gender identity and that gender identity is purely a societal invention. Given that there's no agreed upon biopsychosocial process for the development of a gender identity, there is not yet any clear understanding regarding the quote-unquote causes 
of gender or gender dysphoria. We don't know how you get gender identity in the first place and therefore it's hard to say how it might change. Of course there are the usual suspects, somewhat undefined biological, environmental, or cultural factors. Somewhat controversially, comma, Oops, did you hear that? I said comma. My brain feels like it's dictating a consult note. Let me try that again. Somewhat controversially, some have wondered whether this entire field might encompass the already well-established field referred to as differences of sexual development. These are individuals who have things like 21 11 or 17 hydroxylase deficiencies where one can be born with ambiguous genitalia or other differences in sexual development. In that particular field, there is evidence to suggest that there is some biological or biomedical aspect to gender identity. But it's not known whether this only applies to that particular uh, group of patients and even those findings are not uniform. And so it's unknown whether these are observations uh, that are linked to each other or not. What about genetics? Well, there's no candidate genes yet. And so, of course, then we turn to epigenetics, which is well beyond the scope of today's discussion. What about anatomical brain differences? And what does that mean if we find one? So there is a lot of uncertainty around causes. If you thought that's controversial, well, this is even more controversial. And that is the discussion of when does gender dysphoria begin and what is its natural history? This is exceedingly controversial. It has been noticed that only a minority of prepubertal children who express gender dysphoria will persist in their expression into and through their adolescent years. This has led to much argument about the criteria for diagnosis. And the criteria for diagnosis, of course, is critical for trying to gather data looking at prevalence or natural history. Some have wondered, what is the role of the parent in identifying that which the child does not yet identify themselves? Indeed, it's impossible to expect that a two or three or four year old could ever give a nuanced, personalized description of their struggle with gender identity. And so at what point do the parents play a role in this process? These are the present DSM-5 criteria for gender dysphoria in teens or adults. And I want to emphasize that I'm an endocrinologist and not a psychiatrist. And so I won't have much to elaborate here, but I did want to present them to you so that you're aware. So the definition for gender dysphoria would be marked incongruence between one's experienced gender and one's natal gender of at least six months, which is defined as marked incongruence between experienced gender and sexual phenotype, a strong desire to be rid of one's secondary sex characteristics or to prevent their appearance in the first place, or a strong desire to have secondary sex characteristics of the other gender a strong desire to be of the other gender or something else, a strong desire to be treated according to a different gender, and a strong conviction that one already is of a different gender. The DSM-5 criteria also stipulates that these features must be associated with clinically significant distress or impaired social or occupational or other functioning in order to fit 
the diagnostic term gender dysphoria. So what is the current process for evaluation and treatment of someone presenting with gender dysphoria? Virtually all guidelines start with recommendation that there be an assessment by a mental health professional who's experienced working with gender dysphoric patients. It's recommended that they do so to rule out and or address other comorbid psychiatric disorders. For those who are positively diagnosed with gender dysphoria, it's recommended that they receive education about different options, processes, and outcomes of the uh, treatment process. It's also encouraged that such individuals be invited to explore the potential social outcomes should they choose to proceed. It is often suggested that such individuals try a social transition first if desired and that's a really key point. Uh, the guidelines would point out that uh, medical professionals generally would not advise patients to make a social transition as a routine but rather this is a choice made by the patient and not all persons diagnosed with gender dysphoria will desire a social transition. For those who do attempt a social transition, they're encouraged to explore their capacity to function and the adequacy of their social supports in the new uh, social situation in which they find themselves. It is very controversial as to if or whether or when children should attempt a social transition. What about medical transitioning? If we begin at early adolescence, current guidelines have suggested that puberty preventing therapies in pre-pubertal children are not recommended. In part, this is because of the necessity for discussion of fertility preserving options prior to any medical interventions. As you can imagine, uh, it's a very difficult discussion to talk to pre-pubertal children and their families about the issues, the research, and the options for fertility preservation. There also needs uh, to be consideration of the fact that there's an uncertain degree of reversibility of fertility once cross-sex steroids begin. In those approaching adolescence, it has been noted that early suppression of puberty may lead to better phenotypic gender appearance in that one avoids the somewhat irreversible uh, cisgender pubertal changes that otherwise begin. The concept of suppression of early puberty once it begins underlies the idea that one might expand what's called the diagnostic phase with reversibility. Delaying onset of puberty when it begins is hoped to give the individual and their family more time to consider what they're going to ultimately do before something irreversible has begun. There is some evidence that early puberty suppression, in other words, when it is just beginning, may improve psychological functioning measures in such individuals. Some of the potential risks that are still being explored have to do with the effect upon bone mass or failure to achieve a normal peak bone mass, a process that normally begins in earnest at the onset of natural puberty. If we talk about later adolescence and adults, now we're really talking about the addition of gender-affirming hormones. 
Guidelines have suggested that pubertal suppression would continue until gonadectomy if that is pursued. Estrogen is typically dosed according to pubertal status, much in the way that it would be given to someone with, say, primary amenorrhea. Transdermal estrogen may be preferred for a possible lower risk of thromboembolic disease. Similar considerations are given to testosterone for initiation of testosterone-related pubertal changes. It is largely unknown how to titrate these sex steroids and whether there are any reliable biochemical markers. In some cases, consideration is given in trans females to use higher doses of estrogen in order to accelerate the closure of the epiphyses of the long bones in order to suppress vertical height growth. Consideration may be given uh, to the addition of an antiandrogen in trans females. And uterine ablation has been discussed as a way of uh, bringing an end to menses. So what happens with medical intervention with so-called gender-affirming hormone therapy? By six months of testosterone, you'll typically see cessation of menses, an increase in body hair, skin oiliness, and an increased muscle mass. By one year, one may observe deepening of the voice and clitoromegaly, both of which may be largely irreversible. Amongst older individuals, who are otherwise susceptible, male pattern uh, hair loss may also uh, begin. Using estrogen by one year, one will typically observe a decrease in libido, decrease in spontaneous erections, a slight decrease in body hair, and some degree of breast growth, which is typically usually maximal after two years and highly variable in extent amongst different individuals. I put two asterisks there because of the importance of emphasizing the highly variable extent of breast growth, uh, which may play into the patient's uh, satisfaction with their therapy. The appearance of gynecoid fat mass and testicular atrophy are also expected. What are the risks of medical treatment? I've put an asterisk on this uh, title uh, just to acknowledge that there are many people working in the field uh, who have argued that traditional medicine has exaggerated or overemphasized risk as a form of disapproval. The argument has been that uh, estrogens in the form of oral contraceptives and testosterone, especially for the aging male, are given out almost like candy. And this is probably true. And so I want to acknowledge that uh, there's a lot of unknowns here, and this should not be construed as an attempt to voice any kind of disapproval. Nonetheless, we do know that with testosterone therapy, there is a risk of polycythemia, possibly sleep apnea, that's controversial, and cystic acne. The issue around lipids and cardiovascular risk are extremely controversial and probably much more complex and related to patient-specific factors. In terms of estrogens, probably a 1% to 2% long-term of thromboembolic disease, which of course can be further modified by other risks and may be uh, ameliorated or exacerbated by the form of estrogen replacement presence of hypertension, abnormal liver enzymes, and some have even suggested a possible increase in risk of prolactinomas, but that's not well studied. One thing that does seem very clear is that continued cancer screening is appropriate if the organ is present. In other words, if the patient has a cervix, pap smears are indicated. Gender-affirming surgery includes surgery that does not affect fertility, such as breast augmentation or plastic facial surgery. 
or may include surgery that does affect fertility, which is largely irreversible. In trans females, this might include orchidectomy or penectomy, uh, more advanced surgeries to create uh, labia or even a uterine transplant. In a trans male, this would include oophorectomy, vaginectomy, hysterectomy, mastectomy, and possibly creation of a neopenis. Generally speaking, with surgical procedures of this nature, uh, trans male outcomes are usually reported to have less overall patient satisfaction. As you might imagine, reversal procedures are now in development. There's a lot of knowledge needed. We need to know the long-term effects of pubertal suppression on bone, lipids, vascular health, and cognition. We need to know the appropriate use of hormones to avoid consequences. We need to know the risks of supplemental treatments. For example, uh, some trans females want to be started on progestins, and we need to explore whether this is something that has a, a grounding in medical necessity or are there. Most importantly, and I want to highlight this, it's a mistake to think that transgender medicine pertains to teenagers and 20-somethings. In fact, transgender clinics are seeing patients of all ages, including those in their 50s, 60s, and 70s, who come to clinic often with other risk factors such as obesity, diabetes, hypertension, previous uh, embolic or vascular disease. And there is huge questions regarding how hormone therapy can or should be used in this population. I'd like to come towards the end with a few thoughts on interacting with gender dysphoria patients. I'd like to suggest that terminology is very important. I recognize that there are some voices out there who are opposed to adopting this terminology because they feel that it represents political correctness. I'd suggest, however, that to the patients themselves, it's an issue of demonstrating respect. And our words affect our patients' perceptions of us. Patients do not generally judge our competence on whether or not we knew the correct antibiotic to prescribe but they will often judge our competence based on the words we use to talk to them. I'd argue the same thing applies to the general public and especially to university and medical students. Terminology is important. The informed physician obviously needs to know cancer screening practices, and this is simply good medicine. We also want to ensure that we avoid the appearance of ignorance if we are to have a therapeutic relationship with our patients. I would caution you to beware of sex-specific test differences in reference ranges on either blood tests or sometimes diagnostic imaging procedures. The patient may not identify their situation to the lab person or radiology a technician seeing them, and so it's possible that uh, incorrect or inappropriate reference ranges may be applied to test results, and the ordering physician needs to keep this in mind. And then lastly, I would encourage us to examine our own attitudes towards our colleagues who either practice or do not practice in this area, and how do we treat them, and how do we think about them, and how does that impact the way in which we relate to them. I'd like to suggest that there are a few things that are definitely not helpful in this setting. And I'm thinking of so-called Christian or other internet or blog sites that demonize people who identify as transgender. I would argue that we should distance ourselves as far as possible from this type of behavior. Obviously, hyperbole and conspiracy theories can be intellectually dishonest, and we want to make sure that we avoid any deliberate misinterpretation of data or studies 
for the purpose of suiting any type of agenda. As science-minded individuals, we should not be afraid to work with the data as it is. What about conscientious objectors? As you know, there's an ever-growing list of medical interventions to which some physicians and people attach a moral value. And so this, of course, raises the potential for conflict between opposing moral positions. It's fine to debate this in conferences or at dinner tables, but the rubber hits the road in small centers. What do you do if you are the only physician to whom one of these patients may come with this problem or this issue? What about physicians who are engaged in educating the next generation of physicians? How do we participate? I have a huge amount of sympathy and compassion for physicians who find themselves in this position. This is a very difficult area and one is often left having to navigate decisions representing the lesser of two evils or the better of two goods. It's not easy. I'd like to finish giving you one limited Christian perspective on the approach to persons and peoples. I say limited because it's just my perspective and this is the only place in today's talk where I'll put a little bit of my cards on the table. My suggestion is that we should see the hurt. Studies show that in the transgender population, up to 30% have attempted suicide and 42% have done deliberate self-harm. Up to 68% have diagnosable anxiety disorders. There are high rates of HIV positivity, violence, homicide, incarceration, sex work, and drug use in this population. And it may be even worse in cultures where it's even less acceptable. On the basis of this, I would suggest that compassion is never a bad choice. And that as a physician, I find it so important to set the example in this for others around me. When we look at history, there has always been a class or a group of people who have been considered untouchable, whether it's lepers, those with HIV AIDS, TB, the sexually exploited, the lowest ca uh, castes, and one wonders if gender dysphorics are just the latest group of untouchables, again, thinking in a global sense. From the examples given, history has shown that some Christians have responded to these people groups with hate and discrimination, while others have responded with compassion and bravery. Which one of these two will we most want to emulate? I encourage ongoing discussions with each other around these issues. And I'd like to finish with a verse that I hold near and dear to my heart. I, I count it as a personal directive and something that I am praying takes hold and takes root in my own character. Romans 2, Paul writes, Therefore, any one of you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. Do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience? Not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. May this be the attitude that informs my own heart, my words, and my actions as we navigate this tricky area together. Thank you for your attention.